Section 4. Police Operation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex Bowie, Woodbridge, Virginia. Police Operation by H. Beam Piper. Section 4. After Parker and the state policeman had gone, the man whom they had addressed as Richard Lee returned to his log and sat smoking, his rifle across his knees. From time to time he glanced at his wristwatch and raised his head to listen. At length, faint in the distance, he heard the sound of a motor starting. Instantly he was on his feet. From the end of the hollow log on which he had been sitting, he produced a canvas musette bag. Walking briskly to a patch of damp ground beside the little stream, he leaned the rifle against a tree and opened the bag. First he took out a pair of gloves of some greenish rubber-like substance and put them on, drawing the long gauntlets up over his coat sleeves. Then he produced a bottle and unscrewed the cap. Being careful to avoid splashing his clothes, he went about pouring a clear liquid upon the ground in several places. Where he poured, white vapors rose and twigs and grass crumbled into brownish dust. After he had replaced the cap and returned the bottle to the bag, he waited for a few minutes, then took a spatula from the musette and dug where he had poured the fluid, prying loose four black irregular-shaped lumps of matter, which he carried to the running water and washed carefully, before wrapping them up and putting them in the bag, along with the gloves. Then he slugged the bag and the rifle and started down the trail to where he had parked the jeep. Half an hour later, after driving through the little farming village of Rudder's Fort, he pulled into the barnyard of a run-down farm and backed through the open doors of the barn. He closed the double doors behind him and barred them from within. Then he went to the rear wall of the barn, which was much closer from the front, from the outside dimensions of the barn, than what I've indicated. He took from his pocket a black object that looked like an automatic pencil. Hunting over the rough plank wall, he found a small hole and inserted the pointed end of the pseudo-pencil, pressing in the other end. For an instant nothing happened. Then a ten-foot square section of the wall receded two feet and slid noiselessly to the side. The section, which had slid inward, had been built of three-inch steel masked by a thin covering of boards. The wall around it was two feet concrete, similarly camouflaged. He stepped quickly inside. Fumbling at the right side of the opening, he found a switch and flicked it. Instantly, the massive steel plate slid back into a place with the wall with a soft, oily click. As it did, lights came on within the hidden room, disclosing a great semi-globe of some fine metallic mesh, thirty feet in diameter and fifteen in height. There was a sliding door at one side of this. The man called Richard Lee opened and entered through it, closing it behind him. Then he turned to the center of the hollow dome, where an armchair was placed in front of a small desk below a large instrument panel. The gauges and dials on the panel and the levers and switches and buttons on the desk control board were all lettered in numbers with characters not of the Roman alphabet or the Arabic notation, and with instant reach of the occupant of the chair. A pistol-like weapon lay on the desk, had a conventional index finger trigger and a hand grip fit, but instead of a tubular barrel, 
Two slender parallel metal rods extended about four inches forward of the receiver joined together at what would have corresponded to the muzzle of a streamlined knob of some light blue ceramic or plastic substance. The man with the handsome and mobile face deposited his rifle and mazette on the floor beside the chair and sat down. First he picked up the pistol-like weapon and checked it. Then he examined the many instruments on the panel in front of him. Finally he flicked a switch on the control board. At once a small humming began from some point overhead. It wavered and shrilled and mounted in intensity and then fell to a steady monotone. The dome about him flickered with a clear, cold iridescence and slowly vanished. The hidden room vanished and he was looking into the shadowy interior of a deserted barn. The barn vanished. Blue sky appeared above, streaked with wisps of high cirrus clouds. The autumn landscape flickered unreally. Buildings appeared and vanished, and other buildings came and went in a twinkling. All around him, half-seen shapes moved briefly and disappeared. Once the figure of a man appeared inside the circle of a dome. He had an angry face, brutal face, and he wore a black tunic piped with silver and black breeches and polished black boots, and there was an insignia composed of a cross and thunderbolt on his cap. He held an automatic pistol in his hand. Instantly, the man at the desk snatched up his own weapon and thumbed off the safety. Before he could lift and aim it, the intruder stumbled and passed outside the force field which surrounded the chair and instruments. For a while, there were fires raging outside, and for a while, the man at the desk was surrounded by a great hall with a high vaulted ceiling through which figures flitted and vanished. For a while, there were vistas and deep forests always set in the same background above mountains and always under the same blue cirrus laced sky. There was an interval of flickering blue-white light of unbearable intensity. Then the man at the desk was surrounded by the interior of vast industrial works. The moving figures around him slowed and became more distinct. For an instant, the man in the chair grinned as he found himself looking into a big washroom where a tall blonde girl was taking a shower bath and a pert little redhead was vigorously drying herself with a towel. The dome grew visible, coruscating with many colored lights, and then the humming died and the dome began a cold and inert mesh of fine white metal. A green light above flashed on and off slowly. He stabbed a button and flipped a switch, then got to his feet, picking up his rifle and musette and fumbling under his shirt for a small mesh bag from which he took an inch-wide disc of blue plastic. Unlocking a container on the instrument panel, he removed a small roll of solidiograph film, which he stowed in his bag. Then he slid open the door and emerged into his own dimension of space-time. Outside was a wide hallway with a pale green floor, paler green walls, and a ceiling of greenish off-white. A big hole had been cut to accommodate the dome, and across the hallway a desk had been set up, and at it sat a clerk in a pale blue tunic who was just taking the audio plugs of a music box out of his ears. A couple of policemen in green uniforms with ultrasonic paralyzers dangling by thongs from their left wrists and bolstered sigma ray needlers like the one in the desk inside the dome were kidding with some girls in vivid orange and scarlet and green smocks. One of these, in bright green, was a duplicate of the one he had seen rubbing herself down with a towel. Here comes your boss man, one of the girls told the cops as he approached. 
They both turned and saluted casually. The man who had lately been using the name of Richard Lee responded their greeting and went to the desk. The policemen grasped their paralyzers, drew their needlers, and hurried to the dome. Taking the disc of blue plastic from his packet, he handed it out to the clerk on the desk, who dropped it into a slot in the voter in front of him. Instantly, a mechanical voice responded, Verkin Vall, Blue Seal Noble, Heredity of Mirav of Neros, Special Chief's Assistant, Paratime Police, Special Assignment, Subject to no orders below those of Tortha Karf, Chiefs of Paratime Police, to be given all courtesies and cooperation within Paratime Transportation Code and the Police Powers Code. Further particulars? The clerk pressed the No button. The blue seagull fell out of the release shot and was handed back to its bearer, who was drawing up his left sleeve. You'll want to be sure I'm your working ball, I suppose, he extended, sending his arm. Yes, quite, sir. The clerk touched his arm with a small instrument, which is swabbed with antiseptic, drew a minute blood sample, and medicated the needle prick, all in one almost painless operation. He put the blood drop on a slide and inserted it at one side of a comparison microscope, nodding. showed the same distinctive permanent colloid pattern as the sample I had ready for comparison. The colloid pattern given in infancy by injection to the man in front of him. To set him apart from all the myriad other Verkin balls on every other probability line of paratime. Right, sir, the clerk nodded. The two policemen came out of the dome, their needlers holstered and their vigilance relaxed. They were lighting cigarettes as they emerged. It's all right, sir, one of them said. You didn't bring anything in with you this trip. The other cop chuckled. Remember that fifth-level wild man who came in on the freight conveyor at Jandar last month, he asked? If he was hoping that some of the girls would want to know, what wild man? It was a vain hope. With a blue seal mav rat around, what chance did a couple of ordinary coppers have? The girls were already converging on Verkin Vall. When are you going to get that monstrosity out of our restroom, the little redhead in green coveralls was demanding. If it wasn't for that thing, I'd be taking a shower right now. You were just finishing one about fifty paraseconds off when I came through, Verkin Vall told her. The girl looked at him in obvious feigned indignation. Why, you, you para-peeper. Verkenval chuckled and turned to the clerk. I want a strato-rocket and pilot for Darebar right away. Call Darebar Veritime Police Field and give them my ETA. Have an air taxi meet me and have the chief notified that I'm coming in. Extraordinary report. Keep a guard over the conveyor. I think I'm going to need it again soon. He turned to the little redhead. You want to show me the way out of here to the rocket field, he asked. Outside in the open landing field, Verkin Vall glanced up at the sky, then looked at his watch. It had been twenty minutes since he backed up the jeep up into his barn. On that distant other timeline, the same delicate lines of white cirrus were etched across the blue above. The consistency of the weather, even across two hundred thousand para-years of perpendicular time, never failed to impress him. The long curve of mountains were the same, and they were mottled with the same autumn colors, but where the little village of Rudder's Fort stood on the other line of probability, the white towers of an apartment city rose, the living quarters of the plant personnel. The rocket that was to take him to headquarters was being hoisted with a crane that lowered and fund the firing stand. He walked briskly toward it, his rifle and musette slung. 
A boyish-looking pilot was on the platform, opening the door of the rocket. He stood aside for Verkenball to enter, then followed and closed it, dogging it shut while his passenger stowed his bag and rifle and strapped himself into a seat. Dare bar commercial terminal, sir? the pilot asked, taking the adjoining seat of the controls. Paratime Police Field, back of the Paratime Administration and building. Right, sir. Twenty seconds to blast when you're ready. Ready now, Verkenball relaxed, counting seconds subconsciously. The rocket trembled, and Verkenball found himself being pushed gently back against the upholstery. The seats and the pilot's instrument panel in front of them swung on gimbals, and the finger of the indicator swept slowly over a ninety-degree arc as the rocket rose and leveled. By then, the high cirrus clouds Verkenball had watched from the field were far below. They were well into the stratosphere. There would be nothing to do now for the three hours in which the rocket sped northwest across the pole and downward to the Deher Bar. The navigation was entirely in the electronic hands of the robot controls. Verkin Bow got out his pipe and lit it. The pilot lit a cigarette. It's an odd pipe, sir. Out time item? Yes, fourth probability level. Typical of the whole paratime belt I was working in. Verkenval handed it over for inspection. The bull's natural briar root, the stem sort of a plastic made from the sap of certain tropical trees. The little white dot is the marker's trademark. It's made of elephant tusk. Sounds pretty crude to me, sir, the pilot handed it back. Nice workmanship, though. Looks like good machine reduction. Yes, the sector I was on is really quite advanced for an electrochemical civilization. The weapon I brought back with me, that solid missile projector, is typical of most fourth-level culture. Moving parts machined to the closest tolerances and interchangeable with similar parts of all similar weapons. The missile is a small bolt of copral alloy coated lead, propelled by expanding gases from the ignition of some nitrocellulose compound. Most of their scientific advance occurred within the past century, and most of that in the past forty years. Of course, the life expectancy on that level is only seventy years. Hmm, I'm 78, last birthday, the boyish-looking pilot snorted. Their medical science must be mostly witchcraft. Until quite recently it was. Same story there as in everywhere else. Rapid advancement in the past few decades, after thousands of years of cultural inertia. You know, sir, I don't really understand this paratime stuff, the pilot confessed. I know that all time is totally present, and that every moment has its own past-future line of event sequence and that all events in space-time occur according to the maximum probability. But I just don't get this alternate probability stuff. If something exists, it's because the maximum probability effect of prior causes. Why does anything exist on any other line? Verkenval blew smoke at the air renovator. A lecture on paratime theory would nicely fill in the three-hour interval until landing at Tehergabar. At least this kid was asking intelligent questions. Well, you know the principle of time passage, I suppose, he began. Yes, of course, Rogum's doctrine, the basis of most of our physical science. We exist perpetually at all moments within our lifespan. Our extra-physical ego component passes from the ego existing at one moment to the ego existing at the next. During the unconsciousness, the EPC is time-free. It may detach and connect at some other moment with the ego existing at that time point. That's how we precog. We take an auto-hypno and recover memories brought back from the future moment and buried in the subconscious mind.
That's right, Ball told him. And even without the auto-hypno, a lot of precognitive matter leaks out of the subconscious and into the conscious mind, usually in distorted forms, or else inspires instinctive acts, the motivation for which is not brought to the level of consciousness. For instance, suppose you're walking along North Promenade in Derrick Bar, and you come to the Martian Palace Cafe, and you go in for a drink, meet same girl, and strike up an acquaintance with her. This chance acquaintance develops into a love affair, and a year later, out of jealousy, she raises you half a dozen times with a needler. Just about that happened to a friend of mine not long ago, the pilot said. Go on, sir. Well, in the microsecond or so before you die, or afterward for that matter, because we know that the extra physical component survives physical destruction, your EPC slips back a couple of years and reconnects at some point password of your first meeting with this girl and carries it with the memories of everything to the moment of attachment, all of which are indelibly recorded in your subconscious mind. So when you re-experience the event of standing outside the Martian Palace with a thirst, you go under the Starways or under Hergels or some other bar. In both cases, on both timelines, you follow the line of maximum probability. In the second case, your subconscious future memories are an added casual factor. And when I slip back after I've been needled, I generate a new timeline? Is that it? Verkan Vall made a small sound of impatience. No such thing, he exclaimed. It's semantically inadmissible to talk about the total presence of time with one breath and another generating about new timelines with the next. All timelines are totally present in perpetual coexistence. The theory is that EPC passes from one moment on one timeline to the next moment on the next line so that the true passage of the EPC from the moment to moment is a two-dimensional diagonal. So in the case we're using, the event of your going to the Martian Palace exists on one timeline, and the event of passing along to the Starway exists on another, but both events are in real existence. Now, what we do in paratime transposition is to build up a hypertemporal field to include the timeline we want to reach, then shift over it. Same point in the phantom. Same point in primary time, plus primary time elapsed during mechanical and electronic lag in the relays, but a different line of secondary time. Then why don't we have past future time travel on our own timeline, the pilot wanted to know. That was a question every paratimer has to answer every time he talks paratime to the laity. Verkenval had been expecting it. He answered patiently. The Galdron Hester field generator is like every other mechanism. It can operate only in the area of primary time in which it exists. It can transpose to any other timeline and carry with it anything that's inside its field, but it can go outside its own temporal area of existence, any more than a bullet from the rifle that can hit a target a week before it's fired, Verkenvold pointed out. Anything inside the field is supposed to be unaffected by anything outside. Supposed to be is a way to put it. It doesn't always work. Once in a while, something pretty nasty gets picked up in transit. He thought briefly of the man in the black tunic. That's why we have armed guards at terminals. Suppose you pick up a blast from a nucleonic bomb, or something red hat or radioactive, the pilot asked. We have a monument at Paratime Police Headquarters in the Herrick Bar, bearing the names of our own personnel who didn't make it back. It's a large monument. Over the past 10,000 years, it's been inscribed with quite a few names. You can have it. I'll stick to rockets, the pilot replied. Tell me another thing, though. What's this all about levels and sectors and belts? What's the difference? 
purely arbitrary terms. There are five main probability levels derived from the possible five outcomes of the attempt to colonize this planet 75,000 years ago. We're on the first level. Complete success and colony fully established. The fifth level is the probability of complete failure. No human population established on this planet and ingenious quasi-human life evolved indignously. On the fourth level, the colonists evidently met with some disaster and lost all memory of their extraterrestrial origin, as well as all extraterrestrial culture. As far as they know, they are an indigenous race. They have a long prehistory of Stone Age savagery. Sectors are the area of paratime on any level in which the prevalent culture has a common origin and common characteristics. They are divided more or less arbitrarily into subsectors. Belts are areas within subsectors where conditions are the result of recent alternate probabilities. For instance, I've just come from the European American sector of the fourth level, an area of about 10,000 para years in depth, in which the dominant civilization developed on the northwest continent of the major landmass and spread there to the minor landmass. The line on which I was operating is also part of a subsector of about 3,000 para years depth and a belt developing from one of several probable outcomes of a war concluded about three elapsed years ago. On that timeline, the field at the Hagerman Synthetics Works, where we took off, is part of an abandoned farm. On the side of Hagerman City is a little farming village. Those things are there right now, both in primary time and in the plenum. There are about 250,000 pair of years perpendicular to each other, and each is the same general order of reality. The red light overhead flashed on. The pilot looked into his visor and put his hands to the manual controls in case of failure of the robot controls. The rocket landed smoothly, however, there was a slight jar as it grappled with by the crane and hoisted upright, the seats turning in their gimbals. Pilot and passenger unstrapped themselves and hurried through the refrigerated outlet and away from the glowing hot rocket. End of section 4